My name is Richard Hayes. I'm Professor of Epidemiology and International Health here at the school. I've been working on uh, HIV since the mid-1980s. I think it's fair to say that for probably nearly 20 years, we made really remarkably little progress. And there were a whole series of, um, in some ways, groundbreaking studies, but most of them with negative results. And I have to say that the field became a, a very sort of pessimistic field for a number of years. But fortunately, since then, the last 10 years or so, we've seen a real turnaround. And uh, things now, I think, are looking much more positive. So whereas in the mid-1980s, we had a rapidly spreading epidemic, it's now a declining epidemic. Not everywhere, but uh, globally, the, the number of new infections is certainly now declining. What would you say were the, some of the key turning points? So I'd say there are probably three or perhaps four main areas where we've really made progress since around, well, the late 1990s or the early 2000s. So the first was antiretroviral therapy. The, the effectiveness of this was first announced in 1996, but it took a number of years before this could be delivered in resource-poor settings, including in, in Africa. But that started to happen in the, uh, the early 2000s, and that has led to a, a dramatic decrease in mortality from HIV, and we believe also gradually uh, a fall in the number of new infections. Um, secondly, we did have some good news on the effects of male circumcision as a preventive measure. So there were a series of trials that showed very definitively that this was a partially protective intervention for men. Since then, services to promote safe male medical circumcision have been uh, rolled out quite widely now. Thirdly, after many years of negative results, we've had a, a, a whole series now of um, positive trials looking particularly at um, pre-exposure prophylaxis and microbicides, so products that HIV-negative individuals can use to protect themselves. Uh, and finally, I think I'd point to treatment for prevention or treatment as prevention. So this comes back to antiretroviral therapy, but we now understand that not only does this protect the health of HIV-infected individuals, but if it's taken effectively and the viral load is reduced to a very low level, we now know that this is almost completely effective in, in preventing people from spreading the infection to their sexual partners. And so there's a lot of attention now to trying to uh, get the coverage of antiretroviral therapy up to the kind of level where it could um, substantially cut the number of new infections. And it then becomes a very powerful preventive tool. What really is the rationale behind the Popart trial? We designed the Popart trial at a time when there were two major shifts in thinking, I would say. One was... Um, to do with what we call combination prevention. So this is a simple idea that we have a range of strategies that are each partially effective. We need to bring them together in a package to get sort of maximal effectiveness. One thing is probably not going to be enough. So combination prevention. So Pop Art is looking at a combination prevention package. 
And secondly, around the same time, there was this increased interest in this new idea, this new paradigm of treatment as prevention. So the idea that getting people onto treatment then prevents them from spreading the infection to other individuals. So treatment becomes a preventive measure. And POPART combines these two ideas. So we have a, the POPART intervention is a combination prevention package that includes several different components. The central component, though, is treatment as prevention. So we're, what we're really trying to do above all else is to make sure that everyone who is infected with HIV knows their status and then that they're linked to care and can start antiretroviral therapy and stay on it indefinitely. So that, that's our, our sort of number one target for the pop-art intervention. What's really then the design? A key point here is that you're targeting the general population and how's the trial actually designed to really see the different levels of effect? So you know a a standard clinical trial, the way they do that is they take a, a, a number of patients, say 200 patients, and they're randomly divided into two groups and 100 of them get the experimental drug and the other 100 get a control condition of some kind. Um, So we're not randomizing individual people in this study. We're doing what's called a community randomized trial, where we're taking a a group of communities, actually 21 large communities in Zambia and South Africa, and we've randomly allocated those communities to the intervention, the pop-art intervention, or to a standard of care arm, a control arm. And we're following up uh, people in those communities to see what effect that has on the incidence of new HIV infections. How crucial is it that this is looking at the general population? Well, the whole uh, strategy of treatment as prevention, uh, certainly as we're studying it in pop-art, is that it's a universal intervention. So it's designed for everybody. And actually, what the mathematical models tell us, if they're correct is that you have to reach a large proportion of the whole population, the general population, with this um, treatment as prevention approach in order to see the kinds of dramatic reductions in HIV incidence that we're looking for. And this, we think, is what is needed above all else for these um, highly generalised, high prevalence epidemics, particularly in southern Africa. And now the trial's been um, in progress for more than a year now, and you've had some very notable findings to date. Yes, we're actually about halfway through the trial now. These studies take a long time. You have to be very patient. But we were able to look at what we'd achieved after the first year of the intervention. Our intervention is actually designed to go in annual rounds. So we have these community health workers, we call them CHIPS, Community HIV Care Providers, And they go to every household in the community and they do that on at least an annual basis. There are some individuals they then follow up in between times to provide particular referral or services. But they have to go to all the houses at least once a year. So we were able to analyse and report what we'd achieved after the first annual round. And really that was very encouraging. We found that by the end of the first year, we estimate that of people with HIV infection in the community, that's everyone in the community with HIV, we had reached between about 80 and 90% of those knowing their HIV status by the end of the first year. So that's approaching the target 
uh, set by UNAIDS. So they have these 1990-90 targets, and the first of those targets is that 90% of HIV-infected individuals should know their status. But how about in terms of um, access to ARVs? Because that was another kind of priority for the trial, but also another UNAIDS target. The second 90 of the 1990-90 targets is that of those people who know that they're HIV positive, 90% should be on ART and sustained on ART. So on that second target, we've also made good progress at the time of our annual round visit around 50% of those individuals were on ART. And by the end of the first round, we'd increase that to 70%. So that's already a big increase. But that is the one key area where we know we have to do better. Um, So one of our key findings, actually, in the first year was that it was taking too long for people to link into care and actually to start their ART. And so there's been a real push to improve that. And I'm very pleased to say that during the second year, we've seen uh, quite strong evidence now that that's increasing month on month. So, um, you know, we're really heading now, I hope, for the second 90 as well. The last um, UNAIDS 90 goal is about viral loads. And I guess it's too early to have tested for that. But how do you feel the progress is going towards that goal? Yes, we have very limited data so far on viral loads. We will have more data on that uh, later on, so I can't say very much about that. The limited data I have seen, which comes from the routine services, so uh, viral load uh, tests are sometimes done in the clinics, and so we have a a limited amount of of data which have looked quite promising to me, but I I don't want to say anything too definitive until we see the, the scientific data on that. What have been um, some of the challenges, though? Because um, as well as kind of getting people on treatment, you did also look at things like male circumcision and other kind of societal factors. Um, Were there any other findings or other challenges associated with the trial so far? I particularly point to two, I think. Um, One is right from the start, it's been clear that contacting and engaging men in the community is much more difficult than with women. And I think, to be honest, this is something that many other programmes have also found. And of course, this is for many reasons. Uh, Men are often away, travelling, farming or whatever it might be in different communities. Uh, And so often when our health workers go to the the house, um, the male members of the household are not there, even if they go, you know, early in the morning or late in the evening, which is what we've been trying to do to make sure we can contact as many men as possible. So that's been one of the main challenges and we've we've consistently been seeing lower coverage in men than in women and that will definitely if that continues will dilute the effect we can have because we need this is universal we need to uh, capture everybody and include everyone in the services. Another um, difficult area has actually been male circumcision I and mean, we've had we've had some successes but um, the rates of male circumcision in Zambia are not particularly high, so there isn't a particular cultural context in which male circumcision is, is practised routinely. And the take-up of the services when they're promoted has not so far been quite as high as we would have hoped, although I think, again, it's improving over time. 
How do you see the scalability of this study? It's a very large study compared to usual studies, so you've already got that kind of larger scale, but scaling it up to kind of entire populations in high-risk areas, how feasible do you think that will be? So the key point that we're looking at now in the PopArt study is really around the delivery of the community-based service. The, the effectiveness, and particularly the cost-effectiveness, is not known and that is what we're trying to test. Uh, it, is a, it is a very large intervention. This is not something that, to my knowledge, any government is at the moment planning to implement. And I think they're waiting to see the results of our cost-effectiveness analyses, and those will clearly guide policy for the future. We'll, we need to see how cost-effective this is. Um, if it is cost-effective, then there would be very, a very strong rationale for implementing this very widely in Africa. And we are building on existing cadres. So in many countries, there are different kinds of community health workers who provide particular types of health services. And so it is something that one could think of building an integrated system that would not just cover HIV, but it could also deal with other common health problems, which, are, which would obviously make it much more cost-effective.